Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. And I'm Tyler Orton. BC's economy, it's poised to contract over the next two years. And RBC Deputy Chief Economist Don Desjardins, she's going to walk us through it. The bank has its latest economic forecast out for the province, and she's explaining why even tight supply and population growth may not be enough to keep the real estate industry chugging along at the same pace it has in recent years. And later on, BIV's tech panel will discuss the disappointing results from Google's latest diversity report, as well as efforts for the American internet giant to compete with Alibaba in Asia. The panel is also going to take a look at warnings from American lawmakers to Canada that Chinese tech giant Huawei may pose a threat to national security. But first, here's RBC's Don Desjardins. no secret that BC's real estate sector has accounted for much of the sky-high growth the province has experienced since that 2014 oil shock. But just how sustainable are growth rates of 3.7% like what we experienced back in 2017? A new provincial outlook from the Royal Bank of Canada spells it all out for us, and I'd like to welcome to the show Dawn Desjardins. She is the Deputy Chief Economist at RBC. Dawn, thanks for joining us on the show today. Oh, it's a pleasure. So how sustainable are these growth rates that British Columbia has been experiencing the past few years? Well, we think we're probably going to see a, a shifting down in terms of growth in BC's economy this year. Um, a little bit of a victim of its own success, I'd say. Uh, certainly when we look at growth, and it has been gangbusters. Um, so this has caused um, labor markets uh, to tighten. Um, and we have unemployment rates that are very low, wages that are rising. Um, but on the other hand, we do seem to see evidence um, that trying to get labor um, is becoming more challenging. Uh, job vacancy rates uh, in BC higher um, than other parts of Canada. So I think it just says that you're now coming up against some capacity constraints. You're not going to be running at the 3.5% pace you have been over the past three years. Um, but still, I would consider 2.3% growth in BC healthy. When you consider uh, this labor shortage, uh, is that uh, starting to have an impact on overall, you, you say capacity issues, but is mm-hmm. it also having an impact on productivity? Um, yeah, I mean, I think to some degree um, it, it would have some, some implications for productivity. And I think one of the things we're seeing um, in terms of some of the other data is we aren't seeing a significant pickup uh, in business investments. So to the extent that businesses you know, are trying to fill these gaps in labor uh, with perhaps some kind of automation, et cetera, um, we haven't seen a significant pickup in terms of investment. Um, so that, too, kind of weighs a bit about against uh, productivity improvement. Is it uh, too early yet to really spell out what the uh, impact of a new provincial government would be doing in terms of the economic growth? Um, I, I think it is um, a little bit early uh, in the game. Um, that being said, um, you know, some of the policies that have been put in place, um, working towards, um, I guess, what are slowing in the housing market, uh, I guess, 
building on other regulatory changes that had already been in place. Um, so we are seeing some evidence that the BC housing market is cooling. Uh, jaw, uh, excuse me, housing sales having come down uh, quite significantly over the first part of this year, um, and we're starting to see the pace of home price appreciation go slow again. You know, remember when we had the first batch um, of the changes on housing policy, we saw a pretty sustained decline in house price appreciation. They were still rising. They were just rising more slowly. And now, as this next batch has been put into place, uh, we're starting to see another slowing in the pace of home prices. But again, slowing, not dropping. Uh-huh. I think we're always captivated by what goes on in the real estate market. But <laughs> of course, we've been also following a lot of the drama surrounding the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. I do wonder, though, how much people are going to be willing to invest in BC when we see a lot of the uproar caused by, say, the provincial government and a lot of disagreements between its neighbors as well as Ottawa going forward. Is that going to send a lot of investors to, I don't know, take a pause when it comes to investing in British Columbia? I think the, the long and short of it is that is you know a big issue. It seems to be having uh, some kind of resolution. Um, um, so I don't think necessarily. I think you know BC still uh, presents good opportunities for investment um, because you're still growing at two and a quarter percent, for example, and that's faster than the national average. It's faster than conceivably the the overall uh, potential growth rate in the economy. So I still think that there are opportunities, and I don't know that this would really derail interest by investors uh, coming to BC. When you take a look at other parts of the country where there uh, is larger than uh, typical uh, growth, is it uh, in part, say, in in Alberta because of, um, of what it's recovering from? Exactly. Yes, certainly when we look at the oil-producing provinces, that is one thing that, you know, after coming from a very deep recession, uh, Alberta in particular, in 2015 and 2016, so we did saw this massive leap of 4.7% growth uh, in Alberta last year, and we think we're going to see another about 25 this year, and really that's digging out of that very dark and deep recession. One of the things that we were following at the time, though, is that we saw when the Alberta economy took a bit of a a downfall is that a lot of British Columbians that were living and working there, a a lot of these skilled workers, they came back to BC. Is there a bit of a risk if we see the economy here slowing down and the Alberta one picking up? Is there a bit of a risk that a lot of those skilled workers from British Columbia will go back and look for work in the oil sands? I mean, I think you probably will see some leakage, but I don't think that that is, is going to be a, a major um, impediment to, to population growth. What we're seeing really, even up to recent data, um, is that VC still is attracting both non-Canadian immigrants as well as interprovincial immigrants on net coming to the province. So while it may see that growth rate slip back a bit, I don't think you're going to see a massive uh, influx in terms of moving out of the province just because the growth is still uh, pretty solid, I would say, um, as we go through the, the years ahead. The federal government, as you know, has committed uh, billions of dollars into infrastructure, uh, into housing now. Um, is that coming along at the at the rate that was expected and, and generating uh, the economic growth that might be expected at this point? Well, I would say it's come a little slower uh, yeah. than we had been anticipating. Uh, that said, uh, you probably want 
uh, you know, infrastructure being spent on sort of shovel-worthy rather than shovel-ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they weren't feeling under the gun um, in terms of uh, getting those dollars into the economy. I think they wanted to be tactical about it. But our monitoring of those spending dollars coming into the economy is that we're going to probably see about $13 billion hit Canada's economy. Um, that's both the federal and provincial government spending um, as we go through this year. So yes, that will give some hope, help to our, our economy this year. One of the big things that the federal government's also going to be worried about, though, is maybe a lot of uncertainty surrounding trade. How serious is that right now when you look at it from a global perspective? We have the U.S. and China. You know, I I don't want to use the word trade war lightly, but that is what it seems to be ever since Friday when they announced more uh, retaliatory tariffs going forward between both countries. Is this supposed to be a big worry for Ottawa right now? I think it is a worry uh, for for everyone because I think what's happened is we're from a global standpoint, you know, we've kind of hit cruising altitude in 2017, and it looks like we're maintaining that as we get into 2018. And now suddenly, uh, we're kind of hitting an air pocket or a pocket of turbulence, and it really reflects all of this tariff talk, these threats and actual implementation of these tariffs, which could, in fact, slow uh, trade activity uh, as we go forward. And one thing we noted is that trade activity in 2017 finally started to catch on. We saw a pretty sharp increase in the pace of trade. And now as we go through 2018, it's holding up at this faster clip. But the monthly data said that even as recently as March, we started to see some slowing. So in terms of overall, uh, you know, what should, should people be nervous? I think a little bit because not only um, are we starting to see some you know, fraying, I guess I'd say, in terms of the volume of trade, but we're also seeing financial markets react. And today, when we've seen uh, talk of even greater tariffs being levied against China by the United States, that has taken a toll on stocks. And stocks so far this year, if we look at the global index, um, in fact, it is really quite flat. So not really you know, performing very well. And that's really not uh, what we're used to uh, in recent years. And I think what we would be concerned about is what impact that will have on confidence, yeah. both on the business side as as uh, well as consumers. Is it possible to even go into a recession just in anticipation of some of the tariffs that we might face here in Canada with the United States? Well, I think to the extent that um, households, consumers, uh, businesses really took a giant step back, um, Sure, you could see some stalling in the economy. I don't really think uh, that's what we're heading into right now. I think, you know, if you did get a very sharp increase in tariffs, perhaps across the board and NAFTA tariff, you know, sort of the worst situation, then I think you would probably expect to see us fall into a recession. But I don't think we're quite there. And I don't think we're necessarily really even going to get there. Um, And so we still remain uh, pretty positive, I would say, overall on our outlook on the economy. But this is certainly something um, that we have to be monitoring and and really to see if we are seeing an impact on the confidence side of the equation. Well, Don, we like talking to you during the good times. We like talking to you when things aren't so great for the economy. And I want to thank you for joining us today on the show. It's a pleasure. That's Don Desjardins. She is Deputy Chief Economist at RBC. Stay with us. Ali Pourdad and Amiel Lake are going to be here next with Tyler and uh, with Haley Wooden to talk about technology. Stay with us.
We're going to talk about Google today. This American internet giant, it's all around us, and it wants to be all around Asia too. But Google is also facing a lot of questions over the diversity of its workforce. And a little later on, we're also going to talk about the national security concerns that the U.S. lawmakers are bringing up here in Canada regarding one Chinese telecom giant that really is making inroads up here. Joining us today on our weekly tech panel, it is Ali Pordad, CEO of Progresso, and Amia Lake. She is an entrepreneur in residence at E at UBC. She's also the co-founder of the Women's Equity Lab. Ali, Amiel, thanks for both of you guys joining us on the show. Thanks for having us. So Google's parent company, Alphabet, they've released their annual diversity report. And guess what? White males uh, dominating. Uh, 70% of the company's male, 53% is white. We're not seeing much sway with regards to other people making inroads here. Blacks and Latinos, they only saw their numbers increase 0.1% year over year. And these two groups are actually leaving at the highest rate among all groups at Google. I mean, let me throw it over to you. I mean, do we need to have a little bit more executive accountability here in order to really make this a diverse workforce that it claims that it wants to be? Absolutely. Uh, executive accountability, accountability through pressure from shareholders. I, I, I think it needs to come from the top as well as the bottom. Google has struggled with this issue for a long time and they can't seem to figure it out. They either get in trouble for trying to force hiring policies or they get in trouble for obviously not being diverse enough. It is a hard problem to solve. It, I know it shouldn't be, but it, it really is a challenging one and executive leadership is paramount in getting a solution. When you look at the attrition rates, Ali, that's what really stands out to me. It could be difficult. You could have a pipeline issue to get talent in. But when you have certain kinds of people leaving, you wonder about culture. Is that the issue that Google has to deal with? I think so. I think it's entirely the culture. You know, they, they need to have a more encouraging culture. They need to have a more open culture. Uh, you know, when I think about this issue, though, I don't, I don't own Google is not the company that comes to the top of my mind. You know, it's, it's the entire, really, it's the entire tech industry as a whole. Um, you know, I think the, the whole industry still has a ways to go. And uh, it starts with, uh, I think Amel said it great. Uh, it's, it's both a top down and bottom up approach. Um, you know, both both sides need to put the pressure on um, and that will resonate across the organization. Like, I, I don't want to excuse them or anything like that, but at least they are a company that is making the efforts here. They are putting out annual diversity reports, but we just still wonder how much of a priority it is when they're just continue to struggle and struggle with this, Samuel. Yeah, I, so definitely commend them for making that effort and putting out a report. And, and the big request is that they wanted the public to hold them to account. But the reality is they've made very few gains since putting out that report. And uh, you know, a company like Google, you would expect them to perform from a diversity perspective above tech averages. I mean, tech averages are already so low, something like 70%. Um, so 70% are male at, at uh, Google, but 25% of women are in computing jobs. So, you know, they're barely, <laughs> barely above that 5%. And that's, you know, that, that needs to change. Well, maybe just from your own experience, because you you have a leadership role with regards to women's equity lab. What is maybe some of the advice that you're giving to people that are sometimes dissuaded by what's going on in the tech industry? What What is kind of some of the through lines that you're hearing a lot from people? So the Women's Equity Lab was created to put more women in the cap table. 
And the view there was to, with more women in the cap table, that means more influence in terms of board seats, and then, of course, more influence at executive level hires. Um, We invest in men and women and transgender. It it doesn't matter. Um, Our mandate is really just to get more women in the cap table. But one of the things I noticed immediately um, in launching this initiative is that everyone was sending me female-led ventures. And there was sort of this bias that wasn't talked about of, hey, you know, we want to invest in men and women and and transgender. It it doesn't matter. We're looking for the best companies possible. But that was the bias that was coming through. And so, you know, there's work to be done all over the place. It's almost a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation to a certain degree. But uh, guys, let's talk a little bit more about Google in that we also see them making inroads into the Asian market. Uh, They've now announced that they're investing $550 million US in JD.com. This is Alibaba's main competitor in Asia. Uh, We're also seeing that they're making a play for e-commerce here with this situation while Alibaba is dipping its toes in the North American market. Ali, do you see increased competition between these two big players across the globe? I do. Yeah, I definitely do. And I'm interesting to see how Google made its way into the Chinese market through this investment. uh, I'm not surprised to see it. Uh, I will be surprised to see if it actually goes through, if the Chinese government allows it to to close. I'm not sure if it already has closed, but uh, that would be interesting to know. Uh, and and if it does close, then I can actually see this as being a, a you know a, a logical avenue for a lot of these uh, large U.S. Uh, conglomerates to get into China. Are we also going to see more Chinese or Southeast Asian based companies making roads in North America? Is that the flip side to this, Amiel? I don't see why not. I don't <laughs> see why not. A large percentage of our population right here in Vancouver is um, not from Vancouver. There is no reason why we shouldn't have companies here, just as we are going over there. Yeah, I think that will come down to policy entirely. Um, I know that Yahoo and uh, Alibaba had a big uh, relationship. I'm not sure if that relationship still they exists. They divested. They divested yeah. now, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's you know it's a good leader into into this uh, into this Google uh, investment as well, and we'll see if it continues to happen. I do wonder though if you look at how relations are with Beijing and Washington D.C. right now, this is actually going to give Google kind of, uh, or I should say JD.com, uh, an avenue into the North American market. And I wonder if that's maybe one of the things that could sway maybe the Chinese government to say, yeah, why not? Let's do this. Yeah, I mean, I know that, um, you know, this could be seen as a potential competitor to Amazon. I know Trump doesn't like Amazon. So there's a potential, you know, there's potential bias right there to allow this to, you know, to come into North America. Um, But Amazon is a pretty strong foothold as well. So I, you know, I don't know if Alibaba ever took off in, in the U.S. I don't I don't know if you guys know that. Well, it, we've been following kind of their plans here because they, they do plan on expanding. And really, they're more interested in getting North Americans to sell their products to China versus them getting products from Asia into the North American markets. So it's kind of an opposite path that they're taking right now. Interesting. I, I understand it. I mean, look at how big the market is right now versus a market like Vancouver or, or Canada. I mean, Canada is the size of like a, a big city in China. <laughs> yeah. So why would they be all that interested in really moving hard into this Canadian market? Although, of course, we're thinking about North America as a whole. That's a whole other story. But um, why don't we keep on this China topic? Because We do have a report from the Globe and Mail with regards to U.S. lawmakers that are warning Canadians about potential national security concerns from the Chinese telecom giant Huawei. The issue is that Huawei has been making a lot of inroads into our universities, as well as support for these 5G networks that are taking off. 
And this could be putting allies at risk uh, because Huawei has been shut out mostly out of the United States and to a certain degree Australia too. I mean, is this fear-mongering by these U.S. officials or should we be cautious here in Canada about, I guess, Huawei, which has a lot of connections to the Communist Party back in China? I think it's a bit of both. Um, There's certainly... um, a reason for you know U.S. lawmakers to be concerned. A lot of data gets transacted, um, you know, in in telecom. However, at the same time, there's this kind of weird feeling that the U.S. is putting pressure on Canada in a place that maybe it shouldn't. And uh, Canada's had a good relationship with Huawei, and uh, there really is no reason to to submit to the U.S.'s you know ideas and support them. So it's a bit of both. Haley, are there shades of, say, like supply management here in this uh, argument? (laughs) You know, like, uh, we don't like your dairy. We don't like your partnerships with uh, Chinese telecoms. Yeah, sounds a little familiar there. I'm curious about this, too, because Huawei was in the news not too long ago over, I I think it was with Facebook and data sharing of privacy and how device makers maybe pass some of that information on or they, they use it in ways that, as consumers, we're not really that fond of. Overall, are we trusting or not trusting enough? Or to Tyler's point, is there some fear-mongering alley when it comes to Chinese companies and the threats they pose versus you look at U.S. companies? And there have been many concerns, too, about privacy and security there. I mean, I err on the side of fear-mongering because, you know, what large Chinese company is not associated with their government? I mean, almost every government official is probably associated with a very large Chinese uh, conglomerate. So, uh, you know, if, if we're going to make that argument, then we shouldn't deal with any Chinese companies uh, for that very same reason. And that's just not, I don't think that's a good argument to make. So, um, yeah, I, that, I, I lean on the side that I think the U.S. is just trying to exert uh, political pressure right now. I would also point to the fact that, look, Canada, we're, we're a liberal democracy here in the, out in the West, but we even had BlackBerry back uh, not too long ago, just I think two years ago, uh, it was revealed that they were actually passing information, encrypted information onto the RCMP during a mafia investigation. I think if a country like Canada is willing to do that, it wouldn't surprise me if you know, a country like China would you know put a lot of pressure on a big giant like Huawei to do the same. So I, I think there are legitimate concerns that are being expressed by officials in the United States. The fact that Huawei has been really pretty much shut out of the United States, though, I, I think that is worth you know keeping an eye on just because, look, you could have a similar situation that you do in Canada where, where they are making inroads that the government wouldn't particularly care for. Yeah, I, I, again, I, and I think this, this is, it just opens up the door to a, a larger argument here, a larger sort of, uh, you know, potential problem, which, we, which we're seeing play out right now in the political environment between the US and, and China today. We're seeing the, a big trade war right now. And you, once you open these conversations up, uh, you know, both sides have a lot to lose. So, um, you know, I, I don't think they want to sort of go down this path too aggressively. Okay, I'd like to continue my conversation here, but um, Haley's got a call coming in from uh, on her Huawei phone, so I'll, I'll let her uh, head out of the studio. And, uh, We're being watched. You don't all yeah. want to be in here while I take the no, call? No, no, not at all. But uh, I mean, I'll, uh, Ali, thank you guys so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having us. That's Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa, and Amiel Lake. She is an entrepreneur in residence at E at UBC. She's also the co-founder of the Women's Equity Lab. That's it for BIV Today. Thank you for listening. Make sure you tell your friends to subscribe. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and of course, we're over at BIV.com where you can find more stories across different platforms. Thanks for listening. 